Good morning. Good morning. That's a little better. <laughs> I think most of you know that I'm the astronomer at, at Answers in Genesis, and I perhaps ought to tell you a little bit more about myself this morning as it actually is relevant to what I'm going to share with you. Uh, one question I frequently get is, how and when did I become interested in astronomy? And I honestly tell, I tell people I honestly have no idea when. I do remember um, a lot of things when I was very young. I do remember sitting on the front stoop of our house one summer evening, at least one summer evening, looking up at the stars and the uh, evening sky and being fascinated with what I saw up there. I thought it was really cool. And judging by where we lived at the time, I probably wasn't quite five years old yet. So uh, at a very early age, I was quite fascinated with astronomy. Learned to read a few years later in school. And uh, so I'd go to the, our, our school library, and I'd check out all the books on astronomy. And pretty soon I'd read both of them. And so uh, it was uh, you know, kind of a learning experience. But astronomy is just one of those things that was out there, you know, something other people studied I could, I could read about and learn about and so forth. Now, at the time when I... Uh, Looked up in the sky. I, my parents were in the beginning of their final year of a um, uh, three-year Bible program. And uh, a year later, by the time I was starting school, my uh, father started a um, church plant, uh, a new, new church. And uh, so I was growing up, I was a PK. Some people may think that explains a lot about me. And at the end of that uh, first year, uh, between first and second grade, we had a, uh, had a vacation Bible school. And uh, there was when I, for the first time, really understood uh, my need of salvation, the fact I was a sinner, and, and I responded then, and that was my rebirth experience there in, in June of uh, 19. <coughs> so at any rate, uh, you might imagine that uh, when you're only six years old, you don't have a long list of sins that you've been involved in. And uh, I, I, it's a, a blessing and a curse. Uh, the blessing is the fact that, that uh, I avoided a lot of the, the, the gross sin that people sometimes get into later in life. Being a PK, that made it a lot easier, too. Everybody in town knew I was a PK, and so they, the temptations didn't come my way. My way. I was really kind of providentially protected. The downside is, is that you kind of drift along. And so for much of the next decade, I did. Uh, I was more identified as a PK than as a Christian. And uh, my sophomore year of school, the very beginning part of that year, was a very pivotal time for me. Looking back, it was perhaps the most significant year in my development of my life. And um, a number of things happened. Uh, one was the fact that I got a sense that people knew me as a PK and not, not as a Christian fellow. And there were, there were young, young men in my, in my school, uh, public school at the time, who were um, known for being Christians. And I wasn't. I was just a PK. And that, that kind of stung. You know, why should I be different? And I, I, I re rededicated my life at that point. I also um, encountered the writings of a man, you may have heard of him, uh, Henry Morris, Jr., you all heard of that name? If you're hanging around in creation circles uh, much, you know that name. He was one of the co-founders of the modern creation movement. And uh, I uh, was very impressed with what I read and had quite an impact upon my life. And a few other things happened. I began to realize that this astronomy thing wasn't just an interesting thing to read about or um, do a hobby. It was something that some people actually did for a living. I thought, how cool is that? You know? And then I began to realize that I had the ability to do that. And then I began to realize that that was my calling in life. Up to that point, I had not given any thought to what I do with my life. And suddenly now, I, the Lord is laying my heart that this is what he wanted me to do. And uh, 
I feel very confident that I am doing today, a half century plus later, exactly what I was made to do. Now, I didn't share that with a lot of people at the time because at the time there were a lot of people teaching and preaching that if you're going to be in full-time Christian service, well, that meant being a pastor or a missionary and later on maybe a, a Christian school teacher or the spouse of one of the above, and that was about it. If you were an accountant or you worked in uh, police, law enforcement, security, uh, if you did uh, academic work outside of a Christian environment, well, that wasn't as good as full-time Christian service. Now, hopefully I'm preaching to the choir here because many of you I know work for Answers in Genesis, either at the museum or at the Ark. And you are in full-time Christian service. <laughs> Whether you realize that or not, you are uh, doing that. If you feel called to do that, then that is your calling. And this whole idea that only the uh, pastor or the missionary or whatever is doing full-time Christian service really flies in the face of the Protestant Reformation. Because one of the foundations of that was the fact that all honest work, if that is your calling, is, is equally honorable before God's sight and equally important as being a pastor or missionary. And I, like to, I like to share that with people as often as I can because so many times we think of anything else as second best. No, whatever, whatever you've called to do is your best. Some, I've heard some preachers sometimes say they, they wouldn't stoop to being President of the United States because their higher calling was to be a pastor. Well, if you're called to be President of the United States, you ought not to stoop to being a pastor unless you've got a dual, dual fulfillment there. So I wouldn't stoop to be a pastor because I figured out a long time ago that's not my calling. I can preach from time to time, but that's not my calling to be day-to-day being a pastor of a church. Not to denigrate from pastors. That's a very holy calling as well. We all have special callings. Find out, particularly young people, find out what it is the Lord would have you to do uh, in your work. Well, once I realized that that was my calling and I was to be a a, a creation scientist, an astronomer for for God's glory and honor, and to share the, 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 the doctrine of creation with people that only I as an astronomer could do, I thought, well, I need to probably turn to Scripture and find out about what the Bible says about astronomy. And related to that is what we call cosmology, a term we really ought to define uh, it comes from two Greek words, cosmos meaning the world and logos literally meaning the word, but generally we've generalized that to mean the study of. More specifically, cosmology is a study of the structure of the universe. And as you might imagine, that's very important uh, to an astronomer. It's also very important, I think, to the Christian to know what kind of cosmology the Bible teaches. So I... Uh, Flipped open to Genesis. I better read Genesis again. I've read it before, but now I have new new eyes to look at it with. I'm particularly looking at the astronomy parts, and so I realized very quickly uh, in verse one there is a creation of heaven and earth. And I asked you to read this this morning, and Lalo did. And then um, I realized on day two God made this thing called the firmament. I was reading from the King James version, by the way, and uh, that was on day two and. I really had no idea what that was. What is this firmament thing? What is this? Then I kept reading, and I got to day four. God made the astronomical bodies on day four. Now, that's a very important uh, day for me, the creation week. That would be Wednesday, so Wednesday ought to be my special day, right? Because that's what I focus on. I will confess to you um, a a little little anecdote how how serious I am as a creationist. 
You all heard of this band called uh, Third Day? You all heard of that band? They were popular like 15, 20 years ago. So about 20 years ago or so, I heard about this band. And uh, when, I, when I heard about that, I thought, what, they groove out on dry land and plants? Somebody actually had to explain to me, no, he rose on the third. I, I was probably the only person on the planet who didn't get that immediately. So if I had a, had a band, what would it be called? Fourth day, right? Fourth day, right? Okay. <laughs> I know it's early in the morning. All right. <laughs> so um, I looked at this and I was very puzzled, particularly this thing, this ferment on day two. That gave me trouble. Back then, we, the main translation everybody used was, was the King James, and that's what it said. And uh, back then, this is long before the internet, even though as a PK, my dad had meager resources, I think. Now, at the time, I didn't think so. And he couldn't help me. None of his resources could help me. Nobody I knew could help me. So I was drifting around for quite a while. Eventually, I came to an understanding, which I'll share with you a little later this morning. But in between, I will tell a little bit more, and also, I think, is the proper approach to all of this. Um, one important context here on the day, reason why day two is suddenly important, this ferment on day two is important, is it says in the day four account, three times it says that he put the luminaries, the lights he made on day four, he put them in the firmament of heaven. So I realized, well, this is very important, whatever this thing is on day two that God made, it's very important to what I'm going to be looking at made on day four. So what is this firmament? Well, I want to share with you first before I get before I get to the positive answer what that is, a few lessons from history. I'm a student of history. I enjoy history. People who know me well know that. And um, uh, important to know history because that tells you uh, where we've where we've come from, where we've been, and where we're going, hopefully. And it also uh, informs you of some mistakes that people have made in the past. Hopefully, we won't repeat those. And uh, I will give you two sorry examples dealing with this firmament that God made on day two, which caused nothing but trouble. We're still living with the, uh, with the um, effects of that after all these years. And there's a cautionary tale about today. And uh, and then I want to talk about having knowing these cautionary tales to move on to what it what it means. Now this word that King James translated firmament, the Hebrew word is rakia, and that's a key term. Sometimes I'll just introduce that at the beginning, but I wanted to kind of move into that. When you see the word firmament or expanse, the word is going to be rakia. So I want to look at that Hebrew word and see what it means. Uh, by the way, this morning I think you read from the probably the ESV. I'm going to guess. And it said uh, expanse. You want to know why it translates rakia that way? Because that's what, that's what the word means. <laughs> it's pretty simple, really. <laughs> okay, okay uh, I'll start off with ancient Greek cosmology. We always trace back the history of science back to them. It's a history of the West, but also they had rudimentary forms of what we call science today, and we can trace astronomy particularly back to them. And so by... Um, Certainly by the, by the 4th century B.C., the Greeks had, had come up with this thing uh, we would today call the celestial sphere. This is a photograph of a model of this that I um, had at the campus where I used to teach for many years. It's a, uh, you can see at the center there's a, there's a globe representing the Earth. You can see part of South America showing up there, for instance. Uh, yeah, people in the 4th century B.C. knew the Earth was a globe. That's another story I don't want to go into right now. And then around this Earth was a, a hard crystalline sphere. Crystalline probably means made out of glass, something transparent. And attached to the uh, that crystalline sphere were these stars. And so you'll, you'll see the little yellow dots on that sphere. That those are stars. And you got a little ball up the top there. Uh, 
a little left of top center on a, on a shaft, a little curved shaft. That little yellow ball represents the sun. You can move that. You can uh, change the uh, the uh, angle of this globe. You can change the horizon. You can spin around. You do lots of stuff. And, um, well, if you've been to a planetarium, I'm sure all of you have been, you've got this dome sitting over top of you. And that's because if you go, even go outside right now and look up in the sky, what shape does the sky seem to have? It seems to have a dome shape, like we're sitting underneath a large uh, bowl inverted over top of us. But you'll see things will rise and set on the sky like this. So it's very easy to come to believe that the uh, it's not just a dome over top of us, but there's actually a sphere around us, only half of which is visible at a time. So you've got that little horizon plate there in the middle of that thing. Think stars above that are visible, stars below that are not and this was the model the Greeks came up with probably 24, 25 centuries ago. And this became established science for the next 1,000, 1,500 years or more. Well, the, the Greeks had a word to describe this thing. They called it stereoma. And that gives across the idea of something hard or firm like that. Now, if you... Uh, if you look in the New Testament, where Paul wrote to one of his epistles, he said, stand firm in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the word he used, eustereoma, that he used at that point. So they described this thing as a stereoma because, uh, stereoma because it was something that was hard. It was tangible. It was transparent to which these bright lights called stars were attached. Now, we call this the celestial sphere today. By the way, we still use this model. I use it all the time in my uh, imagining where things are in the sky. Uh, no, I don't think any astronomer for a very long time has believed this is what really is going on. We oftentimes use useful uh, devices such as this, theories if you will, even though we know they are not true. Just the way science is. We oftentimes use things that are not true because this is very useful. Planetariums work upon this principle very nicely. Well, in the uh, 3rd century or so B.C., the, uh, the Hebrews translated the Old New Testament, the Hebrew Old Testament, into Greek. We call this the Septuagint. When you see LXX, that's the, the uh, Roman numerals for 70, that refers to the Septuagint. Now, why did they do this? Well, this is after the diaspora. The people had come back to the land after being in Babylon. The northern tribes had been scattered. And there were Jews all over the place, many in Mesopotamia, but others were in Turkey, some in North Africa. They were scattered around the world, the known world, I should say. Only a, a certain number of them were still left in Israel. Many of those people no longer read Hebrew. They no longer spoke Hebrew. And the scriptures are very important to them. The, the uh, international language at the time was Greek. That was uh, seen to by, in God's sovereignty, the uh, Alexandrian conquest of much of the world. And as you know, the, the New Testament was written in Greek for that very reason. It was an international language. So a group of scholars got together in Alexandria, a city of, uh, of Greek culture and learning. Uh, it was the city of Greek culture and learning, by the way, at that time. Bigger than Rome was, by far. Bigger than Athens. Alexandria was where it was at. And they translated the Old Testament. They get to st uh, the, st uh, the Rakia, and they said, how are we going to translate this? Oh, I got it. We'll, tr we'll translate it as stereoma. And here's the problem. Here's the problem. What have they just done here? I'm convinced that they knew the Greek cosmology. After all, they were in Alexandria, the center of Greek learning and culture. And so they decided to translate it in terms of what 
cosmology was dominant at that time. The Greeks taught that there was a earth here, spherical earth, surrounded by a very large celestial sphere, very big, by the way. The thing I just showed in the photograph is not the scale to which the stars are attached. And they said, aha, uh-huh, on day two, God made this celestial sphere that's described by being a stereoma, which on day four he attached those lights to. And so they put that into scripture in their translation into Greek. And people reading it probably understood, yeah, this is something hard up there with the sky where the stars are attached to it. Now, a few centuries later, about six, seven hundred years later, Jerome comes along. In the West, at least, uh, the Greek had fallen out of use. Uh, Latin was the term, was the language being used. In the East, it was still they were still using Greek. But in the West, they were using Latin more and more. You may be aware from history that the Roman Empire then had two, uh, two capitals, one in the East at Constantinople and the one in the West in Rome. And that was part of the division of the languages there. And so Jerome, working uh, pretty late in the Roman times, decided that we needed a fresh translation of both the Old and New Testaments. They were available in Greek now because of the Septuagint and in the Greek New Testament, but people in the West weren't reading Greek anymore. So just like the Hebrews needed the Bible, the Old Testament, into their language, Christians needed both the Old and New Testaments in their language. So he translated what we call the Vulgate, which means the common language is all that means because that was the common language in that time. And he decided to use the, uh, he, uh, the Latin word firmamentum, you know what the meaning of that is by looking at the first four letters, firm. We get the word firm from this same root. And it, it's a pretty good translation, by the way, of the word stereoma. An excellent translation of stereoma. However, it's a horrible translation of the word rakia, the Hebrew word rakia. And what was Jerome doing then? Well, he probably understood that the cosmology of that day was the same as it was at the time of the translation of the Septuagint, and he was trying to put the translation into the best understanding he had. Unfortunately, the wrong understanding, because nobody today believes that model to be true, but that he went with that anyway. And this was the Bible for the next thousand years. Except just as Hebrew fell out of use among the Hebrews and uh, Greek was the, the, the language Franca, and then finally uh, Greek fell out of use in the West and it became uh, Latin. Latin fell out of use and now you have more common languages. So the desire was to translate this into modern languages, Western languages. So 700 years ago, a man named uh, uh, Wycliffe did the first English translation of the Bible. It's like six, seven hundred years ago. And he got to this word firmament in the Vulgate. You see, the problem with Wycliffe was he didn't know either Greek or Hebrew. He knew Latin, but the only Bible he had was Latin. He didn't know Greek or Hebrew. If he would have had those, he wouldn't have been able to translate them anyway. He didn't know what to do with it in English. Couldn't think of, a, of an English word that really fit. So what he did is he transliterated the word firmament, firmamentum into English firmament and created a new word in the process. You sometimes see in the Bible a transliteration. Transliteration is simply literally going letter by letter and putting it into your language. It's a tip-off when you see that that the translator probably doesn't know how to translate the word. That's simply put, the way to do that. And it's probably a safe thing to do if you don't know what you're doing. So it wasn't a bad idea to do, but it turns out he was working from Latin, which is a translation of the, of the Greek, which is a translation of the Hebrew, so now you're twice removed from the original. Now we're three times removed from the original, and it's getting worse and worse. 
Now, this caused me nothing but trouble because I was using the King James a half century ago, and I come to this word firmament, and I'm thinking something hard, and I knew from astronomy there's nothing like that out there. At least I think there was nothing like that out there. So this caused me nothing but trouble, and it's caused me trouble for decades. And as I arrived at uh, Answers in Genesis, I had a long list of things to research and to write up because I had the time now being paid full time to do this kind of stuff. So one of the first projects I undertook when I arrived at Answers in Genesis was to finally go through this and try to sort out what this translation, what this thing ought to be, because it's very important in building a biblical cosmology. Uh, eventually, along the way, some people began to call this a vaulted ceiling. I have used the uh, the uh, New International Version. It used the word expanse there in uh, Genesis 1. However, I think it was in 2011 or so, they did a, a, a revision of the um, New International Version, and there they replaced it with vault. Now, I've already said that, that stereoma and firmamentum and firmament were poor translations, but I think vault has to be about the worst I have ever seen. It's a horrible translation, and it really caused, caused me to lose confidence in the NIV. And many people still put this forth as what Genesis is teaching and the rest of the Bible is teaching. They're saying that this is a, a vault, a dome over top of the earth uh, that is there, and it's something I've been battling now for five years on another front. For instance, here's a famous medieval uh, uh, engraving. It shows you what uh, people in the medieval time, Middle Ages, believed. you got a flat earth sitting there. you got a dome over top of the earth. You see the sun, the moon, and the stars in that dome. And some intrepid explorer has ventured his way to the edge of this dome and he's found a hole and he's poked his head through and he's looking at the inner workings of how the universe really works. Has everybody seen this engraving before? Okay, a few of you have. Like I said, it's a medieval engraving. It's called the Flammarion engraving. That is, of course, if you believe the Middle Ages existed in 1888. Yeah, that's when the Flammarion engraving was done. It's late 19th century. It's not Middle Ages at all. It's actually a, a, a late 19th century skeptic's view of what the Bible teaches and what people in the Middle Ages taught. They never believed that in the old age, Middle Ages, by the way. It's a fantastic lie that was created in the 19th century. I could spend a whole hour talking about that but I don't have time to go into that. You still, People still believe this is what the Bible teaches, and I trace it back to the very bad translation that people did back in the Septuagint 2,300 years ago. When you make a mistake sometimes like this, it can haunt us for centuries or even millennia in this case, and it's an anchor tied around our necks, unfortunately, and it caused me a lot of difficulty. So there's a very good lesson here. Be very careful in what you do because you have no idea how it's going to trip up people after you. To me, that's, that's a lesson I take to heart every day because people depend upon me. And I need to make sure I get it right as best I can. Now, the second lesson is what we call the Ptolemaic model. This was actually an improvement or an addition to the celestial sphere model. A guy named Claudius Ptolemy lived in the early, uh, well, he wrote a book in the early 2nd century AD, and he was attempting to explain the motions of the planets. The stars remain relatively fixed. They change throughout the night, throughout the year, and seasonally, but they come back next year in roughly the same position. But there are seven objects that move through the sky with respect to the stars. The um, 
the moon takes a month to go through the stars once. The sun takes a year to go through the stars once due to our revolution around the sun, but it doesn't matter which one right now, if we're moving or it's moving. And then you get the five naked eye planets, Mercury, Venus, Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn. And they go through an erratic pattern. They tend to go west to east through the stars, just like the sun and the moon do, but occasionally they stop and they go backwards and then they go forwards again. We call this retrograde motion. I'm not going to spend any time on this, but you can see what's going on here. You've got the Earth at the middle. This is a geocentric model. You've got the uh, you got a planet, say Mars, going on a small circle there, and then that small circle, that red circle, is in turn is going around the Earth. You got circles on circles like gears, and if you notice the line drawn from the Earth to Mars, it will trace out a pattern amongst those stars there. You'll notice here it's going forward, and now Mars is going to slow down and move backwards, and then it's going to move forward again. Do you all see what's going on there? By adjusting the sizes of the circles and the speeds of those two motions, the object, the planet around that circle and the motion of its circle around the Earth, you could get a pretty good fit to the data. And this required about 12 or 13 little circles to explain the sun, the moon, and the five naked eye planets. Not bad. It was an elegant model. Now that retrograde motion is actually caused in the heliocentric model, that is the sun center, where we're, or, we're one of several planets orbiting around the sun. When you pass up a planet, it leaves it behind. Imagine driving down the highway and you pass a car. That car seems to be moving backwards, doesn't it? Is it moving backwards? No, it's just not moving as forward as fast as you are. Oh, that's what causes retrograde motion. Very simply explained in terms of the heliocentric model that the Earth is one of several planets orbiting the sun. It requires a more complicated sort of model otherwise. Again, this was devised in the uh, early 2nd century AD, and this became scientific dogma for the next 15 centuries. It wasn't until uh, 400 years ago that people finally threw off this in favor of a much simpler heliocentric model. So the Ptolemaic model is based on the Earth being at the center, which we don't think is the case anymore. And it became the dominant model for 15 centuries. I do believe it's the most successful scientific theory of all times. Now, you had a guy named Thomas Aquinas who lived at the height of the Middle Ages. You may have heard of him. He was very important. Before him was Augustine at the end of the Roman Empire, and about six centuries later came uh, Thomas Aquinas. Augustine, I think, is a mixed bag. A lot of people like Augustine, said, well, we can't stand him. I'm kind of in between. He had some good things, he had some bad things. He was impressed with Platonic thinking. He liked Plato a lot, and he brought in a lot of Plato's philosophy, very subtly, by the way. A lot of people don't realize a lot of our understanding of uh, Scripture and uh, other issues related to that actually come from Augustine, which actually comes from Platonic thinking. So he's a mixed bag. Well, a few centuries later, Aquinas comes along at the height of the Middle Ages, and he was impressed with Aristotle. You may know Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle as a big three of the ancient philosophers. He really liked Aristotle, and so he introduced Aristotelian thinking, and with that was a Ptolemaic model. And through the, uh, through the work of Thomas Aquinas, the Roman Catholic Church came to adopt Aristotelian and Ptolemaic thinking. In other words, they took this model, this pagan Greek named Ptolemy came up with, and Aristotle for that matter, and wedded that to our Christian apologetic, interpreting scripture in terms of what these men had to say. Now, I think you need to examine their ideas. Just because someone's a pagan, just because they're not a born-again believer, doesn't mean that they're always wrong. It means they're sometimes right and sometimes wrong. But you've got to look at their philosophical basis. I think it's extremely important to look at. And the Roman Catholic Church under Aquinas embraced this, and the Protestant reformers sometimes 
overlook some of these problems. They were fighting bigger battles, to be to be quite honest about it. But I think they didn't quite clear the decks when it came to Aristotle and Plato as well. So this became wedded to the uh, Roman Catholic teaching, and this really set us up for what we call the Galileo Affair. This was four centuries ago. Galileo comes along, and uh, he's teaching that the earth moves around the sun, and this, this contradicted what Aristotle and Ptolemy said. Notice very carefully what I said it contradicted. Did I say it contradicted Scripture? No. And in fact, most of the arguments put forth at the time in the two trials that he had were scientific and philosophical arguments. The way this is usually put forth, I spent an hour on this, but I don't have time for that today, but it's usually put forth that it was religion versus science. Religion, that is, the Bible was being inserted where it had no business and science should rule supreme. In reality, if you study the history of this whole Galileo affair, you realize it wasn't religion versus science. It really was science versus science. It was not the theologians that got upset with Galileo. It was his fellow scientists who got upset because he was daring to upset all that Aristotle and Ptolemy said. That was really what was going on. Turns out Galileo was a bit of a jerk, and that didn't help. And there's a great anecdotes I could tell you there, but uh, I don't have time for that this morning. I have a whole talk I can give on uh, the Galileo affair. But rest assured, most of what you may have heard or learned growing up about the Galileo affair is not true. Now, where did the problem come in? Well, just like I was confused and many other people confused about the Rakia because of this bad translation of the firmament, I blame it on Thomas Aquinas. Because Thomas Aquinas, again, wedded Roman Catholic teaching and to, to what Aristotle and Ptolemy said. And again, the Protestant Reformation didn't clear the decks on that particular issue. But I don't hold too much at fault for the Reformers because, again, they were fighting some very deep spiritual battles there. And this was kind of like a secondary issue at the time. But it's caused us nothing but grief because still, answers in Genesis were accused of, of trying to, uh, trying to uh, refight the whole Galileo affair all over again. And of course, the comparison they want to make is that uh, we are like the Roman Catholic Church and they're like the, uh, the, the evolutionists are like Galileo. But what was Galileo doing? He was challenging the scientific status quo. So who today is defending the scientific status quo here? Well, of course, the evolutionists are. So if you really want to make that comparison to the Galileo affair, who is, who is Galileo in this case? We creationists? We're the Galileos. And the evolutionists are the Roman Catholic Church. No, the only thing, only worse than not learning the history, the lessons of history, is learning the wrong lessons of history. In this case, they had to completely flip the round. But I digress. Two examples I've given to you: how when you try to understand biblical cosmology in terms of what the world says and what science, quote unquote, says, leads to trouble. Well, we've got another one going on today: the Big Bang. You've heard of the Big Bang cosmology? It's been the dominant cosmology for a little more than a half century, and. Uh, it's a um, something that a lot of Christians like today. I could name names, but I won't. There are plenty of, of Christian apologists out there, pastors and other people who are uh, and scientists. Who I don't doubt there's a salvation, the, the fact that they mean well, but they're just wrong about this. They've not learned the lessons of history. They're promoting Big Bang as 
as the uh, the creation story. Uh, the Big Bang model is basically this idea that the universe began suddenly, suddenly appeared out of nothing 13.8 billion years ago in a very hot, dense state. It's been expanding and cooling to the world that we see today. So many of these people want to say, in the beginning, with a Big Bang, God created the heavens and the earth. That's basically how they would like to read Genesis 1.1. Now, there are a host of problems with this. Um, it has many biblical and scientific problems. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this. That's not my point this morning, believe it or not. I'll get to my point soon. Uh, scientific problems. Uh, we have what's called the horizon problem, the fat flatness problem, and the fact there are no magnetic monopoles. Again, I'm not going to describe these. It's not my point this morning. But these are scientific problems. All of these supposedly, uh, by the way, explained by cosmic inflation, even though, even though there's no evidence that cosmic inflation ever happened. And then there's an asymmetry between matter and antimatter. The uh, antimatter is not some sci-fi thing. It's a real thing. And according to Big Bang models, there should have been equal amounts of both in the universe, yet we live in a matter-dominated universe. Why? Well, the Big Bang model has no answer for that question. And the model continually changes. I like to contrast the Big Bang model of, say, 30 or 40 or 50 years ago. It bears almost no resemblance to it. It's continually changing. Biblical problems, I would say, first of all, great time is involved. Reading scripture, I, I, I see that the world is only thousands of years old. Uh, the order is wrong. For instance, you have stars created uh, uh, light before the earth, for one thing. You have stars created uh, billions of years before the earth existed, even though the uh, Bible makes it very clear that the earth came first and stars came later. <laughs> And it's also very atheistic in the direction of its research. If you look at uh, the major players in the development of the model and those developing it today, I have a hard time finding any theist in the bunch, let alone Christians. There are mostly atheists involved in all of this. And again, I think it's important to look at people's philosophical basis or biases that they have where they're going with these things. Now, the big proof of the Big Bang came in 1965, what we call the cosmic microwave uh, background, CMB for short. Now, to explain to you what's, what we're looking at here, imagine looking at a map of the world. You've seen a map of the world like that with the oval. Trying to put a, a globe onto a flat piece of paper is impossible. you got to play games with how you get to um, minimize the distortions you get when you do it. Imagine the equator is running across the middle of the Earth, uh, the uh, map of the Earth like this. At the top of the Earth and the bottom of the Earth would be the North and South Poles. You see what I'm talking about? Now imagine instead of looking down onto the globe Earth, imagine you're looking up into that globe sky around us. You got a north and south pole, top and bottom. You got equator in the middle, and these measurements are made in the microwave, measuring very slight temperature variations. There is around us, coming from every direction in space, a background radiation in the microwave part of the spectrum. It has a temperature of 2.73 Kelvin. Do you have any idea how cold 2.73 Kelvin is? That's just 2.73 Celsius above absolute zero. And real temperature is about minus 450 degrees Fahrenheit. It's really cold, folks, but it's there, and there's a lot of energy in it. And there are slight variations. How much of a variation? About one part in 10,000. So those little red and blue things you see there, those are slight variations, no more than about 0. 0.0003 Kelvin. It's amazing we can measure this stuff. What a time to be alive. And this has been measured multiple times from the ground and at least three different satellites that have measured with greater and greater precision as technology gets better and better. You see, as early as 1948, 
some people predicted that if the if the universe began with a big bang, then there should be this remnant radiation field coming from every direction in space. They didn't have technology in 1948 in order to um, measure this, but 15 years later they did. And when actually the people who found it accidentally stumbled upon it. And this was a prediction of the Big Bang model, and this has become the evidence, the exhibit A for the Big Bang. That's what turned everybody around in the late 1960s, so that this has been the dominant cosmology ever since. Now, I've been talking about the Big Bang for quite a while. I remember one of the first talks I gave in this probably 25 years ago. Uh, I heard a had a, and I've heard this, this Christian man came. He was an engineer, really enamored with, with science per se. And he asked the, uh, when he came up to me after, in the Q&A afterwards, he asked, okay, if the Big Bang is not true, then where did the, the uh, CMB came from, come from? If not from the Big Bang, where was it from? And I had a very good answer for him. I don't know. You shouldn't be ever afraid to say, I don't know, when you really don't know. People respect that. Sometimes you feel you have to give an answer so you make up one on the spot, and that can get you in trouble. I saw that lesson early in my career, and I never really made that mistake very often. I like the, you know, they say, uh, the experience is the best teacher, but I, I prefer to learn from the bad experiences of other people. It's a lot less painful. It really is. So um, I saw people get in trouble, so I decided I'm not going to do that. And so when they asked me, I said, I don't know. And people back off. It's amazing. They don't, they don't go for the jugular like might might think they would. However, I think I have an answer now. I think I have an answer for that. So now I'm ready to start my talk. All right. Uh, let's look at Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And uh, that seems to be pretty plain, doesn't it? Well, maybe not. Let's turn to the second day on day two. God made this thing, this firmament or this expanse. So what is this firmament and what is this heaven that's talked about there? So let's go look at the Hebrew. The firmament, the Hebrew word there is rakia. And um, it occurs 17 times in the Old Testament. Sometimes when you want to know what a meaning of a word is, you'll look up the other places that it occurs, and that will help flesh in the meaning. That's, that's how we work in English, too. If you don't know the meaning of a word, they'll find it in some other context, and that'll help you understand it. So great, 17 times. I can look for those other 16 times. Or can I? As it turns out, nine of those 17 occur in Genesis 1, the very passage I'm trying to figure out the meaning. So already I'm in trouble. Over half the occurrences of Rakia is in a... Is in a uh, is where I'm trying to figure it out. I'm convinced that the two times it appears in the book of Psalms is talking about the same thing, and in the book of uh, Daniel, the one time it occurs is talking about the same thing. But when you get to Ezekiel, it occurs five times, and I am thoroughly convinced, after a lot of study and a lot of thought on this, I'm convinced that it's not talking about the same thing in Ezekiel. So take away five of those, leaving me only 12 occurrences, three outside of Genesis 1. That's pretty thin, folks. I don't have a lot to work with on this. Hmm. Well, what about heaven? Well, heaven is used a few more times. The word, Hebrew word is shemayim. Anybody know what the uh, I-M ending on the back of that means? Anybody? Yeah. It means it's plural. Yeah. There is no singular form of that, by the way. Hmm. It occurs 420 times. Most of the times it's translated as heaven, but not every time or heavens. Why is it heaven or heavens? Well, because it's a plural, uh, what we call a dual form. It can, it can be in the singular or it can be in the plural. The, um, it's sort of like the uh, b- bad example, maybe. I'll, I'll go with it. The word deer. You know that deer is plural and singular, right? So if I just give you the word deer, how do you know if I'm talking about one deer or two or more? Well, you don't. If I said, look at the deer, 
It's ambiguous, isn't it? Because the object of a sentence, and it uh, could be a bunch, it could be one. But if I said the deer is grazing, how many deer am I talking about? One. If I say the deer are grazing, it's more than one, right? Pretty simple because I've got a subject of a verb and I have a, have a, the a verb, a subject of a sentence, I have a verb to go with it. And, um, Hebrew follows that kind of rule too. If it's an object of a sentence, you don't know. But if the, if the verb, if it's the subject of a sentence and you look at the verb, that'll help you out. <laughs> Except like 418 times, it's the, um, object of a sentence. It's only the subject a couple of times. Hmm. You know, in Hebrew, it doesn't make any difference. But in English, it does. So we do look at different translations of Genesis 1.1. Some of them read, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And some of them say, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. Which one's right? I don't know. It's a sense of the translator. It makes a difference in English, but it makes no difference in Hebrew. And you thought translation work was easy, didn't you? <laughs> the very first verse of the Bible, you have a trouble. Because you might get it wrong. Well, you do the best you can and work on it. It's usually the sense of the translator. And by the way, look it up. There are different translations that have a plural. Some of it has a singular there. Okay. Well, what does this word rakia mean? Well, it comes from the word raka. Raka. Now, oftentimes, verbs are, were, nouns are created in, in, in Hebrew by taking a verb and flipping it into a noun. You, you noun your verbs, basically. It's okay in that language. And it means to stamp out. At least once, maybe once or twice in the Old Testament, the word raka verb is used for stomping your feet. I'm raka right now. All right, that's one possible meaning. It can also be used to refer to uh, uh, beating out a metal such as gold. And actually, um, bronze is also used uh, in in the Old Testament as well as gold and silver. You can uh, gold is very malleable. You can you can by mechanical means you can stretch it out into real thin sheets. And uh, you can even see light shining through it. Can be so thin. The uh, you think of the uh, the uh, Ark of the Covenant as being solid gold. <laughs> it wasn't. It would have been impossible to lift. It was so heavy. If it would have been solid gold, it was actually made of wood and then inlaid with gold coverings on. It makes it look luxurious, but it really is a very thin coating of gold on top of that. Now, when you uh, when people look at this, they say, "Aha! Well, what is a what is a property of a metal?" A property of metal is usually hard, so therefore this rakia, which was pounded out or spread out, uh, must be something hard because you're looking at the property of that metal. Except gold isn't terribly hard, as it turns out, but they'll let that go for the time being. You see the reasoning here? They're saying, okay, rakia must be something hard because metals are hard and it's something that's been beaten out. But that's not the way this generally works. When you make a, a noun out of a out of a verb... The emphasis, the meaning should be on the meaning of the verb, not some possible property of the object of the verb. This is pretty simple. I can't imagine why so many people have difficulty with this concept. It'd be like saying if you're going to, uh, well, let's take a look at this. The word expand. This is amazing how well this works. It comes from a French word, believe it or not. It's a verb, expand. And if you uh, expand something, then you have created an expanse. Now, what kind of things might you expand? Well, a, a balloon might be a thing you would expand. And so by using the reasoning many people do to try to get the wrong understanding of rakia, they say uh, you would have to argue, well, because a, a, a balloon is made out of rubber, then an expanse must be made out of rubber. And that's nonsense. An expanse is something that's been blown up or expanded outward. 
So we should look not at the property of some substance that has been rakad, but we should instead look at the action of that verb. And if you expand something, then it makes an expanse. It's amazing because this is what the word actually means. I know uh, a couple of, uh, I'd say three, world-class Hebraists. Two of them got their terminal degrees, graduate degrees from Hebrew Union, across the river in Cincinnati, arguably the best Hebrew school in the United States, maybe in the world. And the other one I know uh, got his um, uh, his PhD in Hebrew from a pretty pretty well second rate institution you may have heard of called Cambridge. I'm being facetious, of course. <laughs> and so whenever I have a question I, uh, about Hebrew, I, I, I ask these guys, what does it mean to be, be a world-class Hebraist? Well, you need to know Hebrew. You need to know probably a dozen related uh, ancient Semitic languages and as well as German as well to read all the sources and lexicons in all of this. That's a pretty, that's a pretty steep amount of material you have to, have to uh, conquer here. The reason why it's important here is because cognates of the word rakia and raka appear in those other ancient Semitic languages, and they can help fill in the probable meaning of the word Hebrew. When I ask any Hebraist, they will tell me the word means expanse. Even Martin Luther, five centuries ago, he said, I don't know why the Septuagint translated it this way, because it doesn't mean that. It means <clears throat> expanse. 500 years ago, Martin Luther understood that. And uh, these modern times, we should know even better. But there are people out there persisting, persisting, no, this must be something hard. Let's look at Genesis uh, 1, 6 through 8. It says, And God said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening and there were morning the second day. Five times the word expanse or rakia is used here. That's a lot. That's over half of the times it's used in the uh, Genesis 1 account. It's uh, nearly a, th a third of the uses in the entire Old Testament. Notice several things. It expands in the midst of the waters. If you look at Genesis 1 and 2, it's talking about waters quite a bit. And that's uh, echoed in uh, Genesis uh, 2 Peter 3, where it talks about the water, earth being created uh, in the water and of the water. Their water is very important in the creation. In the midst of all these waters, he makes this expanse of some sort, and its purpose was to divide the waters. And the wa division here is above and below. So whatever this thing is, there's water below and there's water above. Now, the below part is not too difficult to figure out. I think it's talking about surface water on the earth, largely the oceans, but also other places as well. Now, those waters above, that gets tricky. How you, how you figure out where the waters above uh, are may depend, will depend upon what you think the expanse is. And how you figure out what the expanse is may have to do with what you think the waters are. So it's kind of, it's a package deal. You can't figure out one and figure out the other. I think you gotta figure them out together here. Finally, it says that God called the expanse heaven. The second time that the word is used, heaven, Shemayim, is used in the creation account. Then, of course, the day ends. Well, we're looking, uh, I want to take a few notes here. First of all, this is day one, day two. Hmm. And there are waters above. We've got to figure out what that might mean. We know that God made the stars on day four, which I'll talk about here in just a moment. Stars aren't in the, aren't in the, aren't in the mix here yet. So this picture I have here doesn't quite fit because the stars don't exist yet. I haven't found yet a good image of what I think you ought to use for day two. It's kind of hard. And then, because uh, how can you, it seems to be empty at that point. How can you, how can you illustrate emptiness? By blank slide, maybe? Now, here's a good question for you. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Verse one, right? Day one. And then on, on the uh, day two account, he says, he made this thing. And on day, verse eight, it says, and God called the expanse 
heaven. Did God create the heaven or heavens twice? Think about that for a minute. It says in verse 1, He created the heavens and the earth. And then in, in verse 8, He said, I just made it on day 2, a separate day. I made this thing and I call it the heavens. Yeah, I didn't think about that for a long time myself. <laughs> One day I said, whoa, wait a minute. This is an important clue. How do, how do you, how do you uh, separate those two out? Okay, let's, look at, let's look at the day 4 account. I'm just going to give you parts of four, three verses there. Let there be lights in the firmament of heaven, or the rakia of Shemaim. In verse 15, and let them be for lights in the rakia of Shemaim. And, and God set them in the rakia of Shemaim, verse 17. Three times, not once, not twice, but three times, God says that he put these lights, these astronomical bodies, in this rakia of Shemaim. Why do you think he said it three times rather than just once? Once would have been sufficient. Why three times? When you repeat something, it's for emphasis. It's like saying, this is important. This is important. This is important. If you say something, repeat it three times, you get people's attention. I think he's telling us, pay attention. There's something important going on here. And notice that he puts the two words together, rakia and shemaim, that is expanse or firmament and heaven together for the first time with a prepositional preposition between them. The rakia of shemaim, rakia of shemaim, rakia of shemaim. I think... What he's signaling here is lest there be any doubt where I'm putting the stars on day four is this thing I made on day two. He's telling us that he put the stars in this thing he made on day two. It's mentioned one more time in the creation account, beginning of the day five account. It says, And God said, Let the waters bring forth abundantly the moving creature that hath life and fowl that may fly above the earth in the open expand or firmament of heaven. This is from the King James. Now the word open there is a little tricky. The, uh, the Hebrew word there is pane, and usually it is translated as face. That's what you see in verse 2 of Genesis one, it says that uh, darkness is on the face of the deep, the pane of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving on the pane, the face of the waters. So it's talking here about the surface of this. So this thing is above us. If the water's down here, this thing must be above us. That's where the astronomical bodies are, and they're above us. It's telling us, I think, on day five that the birds are merely flying on the near side of this thing. They may be this side of it. They may be just inside of it. It's not clear, but they are on the near side. Whether they're actually in it or just this side of it is not important right now. They're on this side of it for sure. And the astronomical things, I think, are a bit beyond that. It's a very subtle clue, but it's important. Psalm 19.1 kind of reinforces all this. It says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament, or the rakia, or the expanse, shows its handiwork. It works off of parallelism here, and it only works if the two things are parallel. And he says heaven and firmament, but of course we already knew that from chapter uh, verse 8 of chapter 1 of Genesis because he equates the two. He calls the Shemayim, uh, calls the Rakia, the expanse, Shemayim, heaven on that point. So this doesn't help us anymore. It just simply reinforces the understanding we had from Genesis 1. And by the way, verses 4 through 6 of, of Psalm 19 clearly place the sun in this thing that it's talking about. It's very clear that it's there. Again, reinforcing what we already knew from Genesis 1. So my conclusion about what the rakia is, is it's the expanse or where the astronomical bodies are. And maybe it includes the atmosphere too. It's not clear. After all, 
where does the atmosphere end and the space begin? There are several different definitions, 50 miles, 60 miles, 62 miles, take your pick, because it is fuzzy. And that's man's distinction anyway, isn't it? God doesn't clearly tell us where the distinction is. Now, i got to be careful here because I remember I had two cautionary tales and another one current today. I'm a product of the 20th and now 21st century, and I have to be very careful because I don't want to repeat the same mistake that people have made in the past and other people are making today. But I want to express it in terms of what people understand today. I would say that this rakia, this expanse, this firmament, is everything kind of above us what we call outer space today, and probably much, if not all, of the atmosphere as well. Again, I know the, the, the risk I'm taking here because I'm putting it in terms of what we understand today, but that's because that's who we are and how we communicate. I didn't always share this belief. I went for 40 years taking a very different approach. Uh, I followed the, the lead of, uh, of Henry Morris and John Wickham, the co-founders of the modern creation science movement. And what I'm about to say, I don't want you to misunderstand me in the least. I'm disagreeing with them, respectfully so. I had the pleasure of knowing both John Wickham and Henry Morris. They were fantastic men of God. They were very gentle. They were kind. They were great examples. But they were men. And they can be wrong. I only hope at the end of my career that my batting average is half as good as theirs. They stake out a lot of positions on a lot of things. And so you're gonna, you're gonna, when you stake out a lot of positions on a lot of things, you're gonna be right, uh, right part of the time, you're gonna be wrong part of the time. I've not staked out nearly as many positions, so I've made fewer mistakes than they have perhaps. But on the other hand, my percentage probably isn't as good as theirs. So, don't think I'm disrespecting these two gentlemen. I have nothing but total respect, but I want to say that I respectfully disagree on this. They argued that the heavens of day one was the space of the universe, and that the expanse of day two was the Earth's atmosphere. And I think they've got this completely backwards. They want to say, later on they point out that the, the, uh, that the uh, uh, stars merely appeared to be in the expanse and the birds flew in the expanse. And I don't think that, that jibes at all with what Genesis 1 is telling us. If anything, verse 20 tells us it's the, it's the birds that fly on the near face of this and the other things, are the astronomical things, are deeply immersed in all of this. Now, why did they get this backwards? It was to support this idea we call the canopy model. You all heard of the canopy model, canopy theory? It's the idea that the uh, early uh, atmosphere was very different than today. You had a vapor canopy or water canopy of some sort above the the Earth's atmosphere, and it collapsed at the time of the flood, so it's no longer there, and it protected uh, certain harmful radiation from reaching the ground, which explained all sorts of things like longevity of, of people before the flood, and we lost that gradually after the flood. It supposedly solved other problems, like why there was no rainbow or no rain before the flood, but that's a misunderstanding of Scripture. The Bible doesn't actually say that. It's an interpretation people placed upon it. It's um, there've been re all the major creation ministries to day reject the canopy model, even though we all endorsed it at one point, uh, I, uh, myself included. The, uh, there are scientific problems with it, but there's also a biblical problem. I think it's one uh, Psalm 148.6, uh, I believe. Uh, it says, praise ye waters above the heavens. It sure sounds like this day two waters above that, uh, that is being referred to there. Yet, this is almost certainly a post- uh, post-flood psalm. We don't know who wrote it, but it probably was after the flood. So why are you you're talking about something that no longer exists? 
So it's largely rejected now. Should we not then um, reinterpret the cosmology based upon that faulty understanding? That's what I came up on the scene at Answers in Genesis seven, eight years ago, and I realized, wait a minute, we need to reevaluate all of this, which is why I turned my attention uh, to this. So a straightforward reading of Genesis 1, I think, is that expanse is space and maybe the atmosphere too. God makes it on, on day two. So for the first day of creation, all you had was the earth and nothing else, not even space. Can you wrap your head around that? If you can, then please help me out because I'm having extreme difficulty with that. But apparently the totality of physical existence was just the earth and nothing else. And to my modern thinking, I can't figure that out. But I think that's what scripture is telling us. So he makes this expanse on day two, which means it's a lot bigger than it used to be. So what is the creation of 1-1 where it says God, uh, God created the heavens and the earth in the beginning there? Well, I think heaven and earth is a mirrorism. A mirrorism is a two extremes that involves everything. You've heard the expression, um, uh, I searched high and low for something. Does that mean you, you check the top shelf and you check the bottom shelf and you didn't check in between? No, when you say you searched high and low, you checked everything in between, did you not? Heaven and earth is the same way. There is no uh, word for universe in ancient Hebrew, but the mirrorism, heaven and earth, gives a nice job of doing that. Basically what it's saying is, in the beginning, God created everything with details to follow because this is an example of introductory encapsulation. There's an introduction followed by details and I would suggest that the details pick up in verse 2 and run all the way up through chapter uh, 2 verse 3. That's the creation account. Then the creation of Adam picks up in verse 4 of chapter 2. Yeah, those chapter divisions are not divinely inspired. Um, there's a, there are other examples of introductory encapsulation in Genesis alone. For instance, at one point it says, And Joseph had another dream, and his brothers hated him even the more because of his dream. Well, that's just pregnant with all sorts of questions. Uh, why did they hate him for this dream? And so all sorts of questions come up, not answered there. But then over the next couple of verses, it explains what kind of dream he had and the reaction his brothers had and so forth. That's an example of introductory encapsulation with details to follow in that. So, one of the big projects I had when I came to Answers in Genesis was to try to figure out the proper biblical cosmology. Now, interesting development here. I wasn't planning on this, but this then led me to three conclusions, all three of which are anathema to modern cosmology. So this is not coming from my astronomy, I know, because nobody would agree with me outside of a few Christian astronomers. But uh, the universe has an edge. If you've got this finite sized thing out there with water at the edge of it, then you better have an edge. And uh, I don't know a single astronomer outside of a few creationists, wacky as we are, that believe the universe has an edge. But I firmly believe that today. In fact, for 40 years I didn't believe it, now I do. Because I think that's what scripture implies. Also, the universe has a center. It was kind of spread out from the earth anyway, expanded outward. We generally assume a spherical symmetry and these kind of problems in physics and astronomy because it makes the math easier. But I think it's probably pretty good here, expanded outward. And so the universe has a center, and we're somewhere near that center. I'm not an absolute geocentrist. We don't have to be exactly at the center, but I think we're somewhere near the center of God's creation. just works out that way. That's the way God did it. Why? I don't know. doesn't matter. That's the way he did it. And then there, uh, there, at the edge, I mentioned, there is water out there. People have asked me, well, what form does the water take? Well, the word, Hebrew word for water there means, well, let me ask you this. When I say water, what do you think of? You think of liquid 
H2O, don't you? Did anybody think of ice when I said water? Probably not. Did anybody think of steam? Probably not. We have words for those, don't we? When we say water, we mean liquid form of H2O. If I meant uh, solid or gaseous H2O, what do you said? Ice or steam. Well, there are similar words for vapor and for ice in Hebrew, but they use the word mayim, which is the word for water. Hmm liquid water at that. So I'm inclined to believe the water at the edge of the universe is liquid water. Now some of my creation science brethren who agree with me up to this point say, well, wait a minute, the physical conditions there would not permit it. The pressure's too low and the temperature's too low. It has to be ice or gas. I say, wait a minute, we're talking about the physics at the edge of the universe? Would you care write an, to write an equation to describe the conditions physically at the edge of the universe? It cannot be done, folks. I'm inclined to believe it's water. And this is where it gets interesting. I, I, I've I've studied this, you know, over weeks, and I talked to a lot of Hebrew people when I, for several weeks there, and I finally got a handle, and I, I did the next thing I'm supposed to do, and I sat down and started to write. And I spent several days writing this up. And I remember the day, I wish I would have written down the date, but I came in, you know, in, in the office, it's about 8 o'clock, I'm sitting there in the office, I'm typing away, and all of a sudden this bolt of lightning hits me. I wasn't looking for this, but this bolt of lightning hits me. I said, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Water consists of what we call baryonic matter. That's what we call normal matter made out of protons and neutrons and so forth. And the fourth law of thermodynamics, excuse me, the third law of thermodynamics, you didn't know it was the third law, I'm sure, but the third law of thermodynamics dictates that it must have a temperature. And things that have temperature, we know physically, this is where the biblical stuff st stops and we move into the science just a tad bit. This we know that things that have temperature made of baryonic matter must radiate. Now we happen to know that uh, with increasing distance in the universe that radiation is going to have its wavelengths stretch. It's what's called the Hubble relation. Don't want to take time to doing that. So I would then opine that since there's a shell of water out there that's radiating, it's uh, going to send radiation back towards the Earth. It's going to be redshifted a bit. So I would expect that there should be uniform radiation from all directions in space, and it should have a very low temperature. That's a prediction that comes out of this biblical cosmology of this water at the edge of the universe. You mean like the cosmic microwave background? As I said earlier, when I was challenged with that question, if the CMB is coming from, not coming from the Big Bang, what's it coming from? I think I have an answer today. I think it's coming from this water at the edge of the universe. Had somebody 60 years ago taken the Genesis account of day two very seriously, they might have been able to predict this. It doesn't count really since we're after the fact doing it. I can't be held responsible because I was in fifth grade at the time. All right, so I can't be held responsible for this. But uh, uh, some people should have. But I do have an explanation for this. And I think that's wonderful because, I, again, I wasn't looking for it. I didn't say, Lord, you know, give me an explanation for the CMB. It was one of those things in the back burner, back of my mind. But I, I was praying, Lord, give me help on understanding what your cosmology is. Many of you may have heard of Russ Humphreys. You may have heard of his white hole cosmologies. It turns out he abandoned that a number of years ago in favor of what I call Humphreys 2.0. And uh, he abandoned that more recently in favor of what he calls, I'm calling Humphreys 3.0. And I had a opportunity to hear him speak about a month and a half ago, a month ago actually, and he'd been bugging me for a while. And in his presentation, 
I found out that he had reached almost the same conclusion I had reached. And so Russ and I are now actually singing from the same page for the first time when it comes to cosmology. And I think that's a fantastic place to be because iron does sharpen iron, doesn't it? And I'm looking forward to using this as a foundation to build a more biblical cosmology and hopefully a biblical astronomy. So there's my explanation, and I'm sticking to it. Join me in prayer, please. Our Father, we thank you for this time to assemble together this morning. We ask, Lord, that you would take my uh, words that I've shared this morning with people to heart, that they would be encouraged, be challenged. Hopefully, Lord, that uh, they will be blessed by being here. And I pray, Lord, as we go about our day from here, that uh, we'd be mindful of others and not of ourselves, that we would give you glory and honor in all we say and do. And we treat each other with kindness as we ought to. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.